this is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Making Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. Oh, it is a hot one in Hong Kong. I am here sitting in a hoodie and long sweatpants right now. You guys can't see this, but Sharice's bun is super on point today. Well, I mean, you're also looking at, like, I assume, picture of me that's only several inches large. So it's kind of nice because now I get to record making it up without doing makeup or even getting properly dressed. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (sighs) Hey, it does nothing to change the quality of what I talk about and and think about. Um, I am just more physically comfortable now. How was the weekend, Sharice? Did I tell you I watched Black Klansman? No, I don't even know what that is. It's the most recent movie by Spike Lee. You hadn't heard of it. Vaguely. It's pretty good. And I'm like kind of hesitant because I want to talk about it. But I also don't... I know you don't care because you're probably not going to watch it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But our listeners might care if there are spoilers. So fair warning. Maybe skip 30 seconds ahead. Is it worth watching? Yes. Yes. It is worth watching. It's loosely about a black man who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan. Like this is the most basic premise and it's not really giving anything away. And it is based on a true story that is totally insane. Interesting. It's true. Um, One thought that just came up was for directors such as Spike Lee that have had a multi-generational career, how does their craft change in the modern era in the face of like technology mm. and access to different tools? Oh, I didn't think about it in the face of technology, but I did think about how his work does change depending on when something was released because he happens to be a director, I think, who is interested in speaking to that exact moment in time. So he's maybe less concerned with, oh, how will this look in 50 years? Like, will this be a classic as opposed to, what is the impact that this can have right now on the way people are thinking and feeling in the context of things that are happening currently? In terms of distribution, I mean, it's funny that we're already getting into a, a subject in the intro that is similar to my actual topic. But it is, you have to think about, well, what is the argument for going to see this movie in an actual theater as opposed to watching all of the things that are available on streaming? I'm just curious. As people change and more tools are provided to them, like what does it mean? And I think part of this arose because of just this thing I read about Star Wars back in the day and how, I mean, Star Wars as a story is based off like a really old school Japanese tale. Star Wars, as we know it, like the first original trilogy, is it any less of a movie in 2018 because it didn't have access to a certain quality of technology? And I don't think that's valid. Right. Mm. So I'm just curious. But moving on, I finally listened to your Avery Truffleman story ah, yesterday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I love how you are admitting this on our podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but, I but mean, thank you. Thank you for listening. I have to say that was actually really well done. Like, I think that, thank you know, you. I, it was, it's funny because I, I read the comments from Avery in your guys' email exchange 
before listening to the story. Which kind of gave away the conclusion in a way, but it, mm, it is what it not is. Not really. I mean, there's nothing that was like, oh, that's a spoiler. But what's interesting is just like how quickly, or maybe it's just a testament to Avery's personality too, but just the way you guys hit it off so quickly. Mm. Even though you guys had just met, it didn't feel like you guys were interacting on the basis of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's... I, I try for it as much as possible when interviewing new subjects, but it doesn't always work, right? Because people will bring different perceptions with them of how an interview should go. So it kind yeah. of depends if that person is in a, is in a mindset where, oh, this is like press about me yeah. and this thing I've done. Or if this is like a conversation with someone who is like curious about yeah. whatever it is I do. I always look for these, but I think she said it twice. She's like, ooh, that's a really good question. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Especially someone ooh, like Avery you know, who is... What's, sorry, should, should I let you finish your question? Because yeah, let me finish. I, okay, go, go, go for it, go for it. Because it's interesting when you're talking to a fellow person in media who is on the receiving end of that, and then mm -hmm. when they give it out, like that's also really interesting because arguably as someone in media, it's your job to kind of ask interesting, fascinating questions to elicit interesting responses. I love being told that I ask good questions. That's like, I mean, I don't know. Do do people not in media also appreciate that as a compliment? No, they know. do. But I just think that it's... But I think for it's us... It's almost like a double. More. It's like a... Yeah. It's like a double... Yeah. Because you bonus. know oh, that person asks yeah. questions too. Like that's your profession as exactly. well. Exactly. Um, but you know, what was tricky for me is that Small I was victory. cutting the audio. Like I was responsible for cutting this story and the natural instinct in me was to cut it out, was to like not include that. But then actually I ultimately left it in because not because I wanted to big up myself, but because <laughs> editorially I felt like it could make you more predisposed to how she is thinking and feeling when you know that she felt positively about being asked something, you know, like, like this idea that, oh, maybe it's something she hadn't necessarily thought about before. Yeah, that's ultimate. That was my decision. This is something else I was thinking about. And like, if someone doesn't know who you are as an interviewer, to see that might actually create a sense of credibility. Mm -hmm. Like people probably are more familiar with Avery Truffleman, no offense, than oh, they are maybe no. Sharus Poon. I don't take any offense. So having said that, what it means is that yeah, if you hear that, like, oh man, like this, you're actually kind of rising to the level of someone that other people will probably really respect. Yeah. And I think ultimately like that is in service of the interview as well. So that I think usually people are more interested in a conversation between two people that they know and are prepared to like or trust as opposed to just one, which is why we do see um, articles and videos that are between like celebrities, let's say. How's the office? It's good. Have you guys still been playing uh, FIFA? We have been playing FIFA. We've been playing FIFA 19 as of late. You know what's weird is that here in London, every now and then I'll see an advertisement for it. Or like mm -hmm. uh, I yesterday I bought groceries and it was the first thing in the supermarket. Like this totally average, not downtown supermarket. I walk in the door and it's a stand for the game. And you can buy like the Xbox copy. Anyway, whenever I see it, I think of you guys. It's also interesting because in that space currently, because when it comes to sports games, it's often a very like zero sum game because 
you're not going to go and buy Eat two heat. different titles of the same sport. So, for ah, example, right. if there's two publishers, I only buy one or the other. Wait, is there another football sports game publisher? It's by Konami. Mm. Yeah. But like, for example, you know, having said Wait, that. Wait, do you mean Konami? Sure. Whatever. You know what, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. But they have Pro Evo Soccer. From an advertising perspective, like I feel as though FIFA now is not something you just jump into. It's either you're looking for a football game or you know it's coming. Because it's Wait, but a yearly you... release, right? Hmm, I suppose it's not quite the same as the football game because... Like you said, it is a yearly release and it's based off of real life events, right? Like real life people. But the thing you said about not purchasing more than one is interesting to me. So would you not necessarily watch TV shows that were about the same subject? Or were you? would you not um, buy two video games that are approximately the same? I don't know if this, I don't know if it applies widely. I, I probably wouldn't. Or even like to read two books. Yeah. I think video games are maybe a little bit unique. That's actually a good thing. It's a, that's actually a good thing to kind of consider as to why we feel that way. Before we jump into things, I mm. thought it was interesting because now that more people are more familiar with the fact that you and I are not doing this live, well, we're doing it live, but we're not doing face to face. People are kind of curious as to how we approach the whole recording process. I mean, it's it's a good question because I think most people who are currently interested in a, doing a podcast probably need a solution like this. Yeah. Because it is yeah. hard to get two people in the same room at the same time with equipment. And it is much easier if you can do it at home in front of your laptop. Yeah. Jeremy L., who's a really, really solid artist and someone that's really active in the Slack community, he asked me, he was like, oh, like, how do you guys do it now that you're there and she's here or vice versa. And it was actually kind of like good timing because we're in the midst of releasing sort of the first of a multi-part guide on how we do our stories. Mm, because yeah. ultimately, I think it's important for people to kind of understand how we're thinking about things and at least have a foundation to how we do it so you can go off and create your own approach to how we do it. But there are certain things that I think are very technically driven where, hey, this has been proven to establish a certain level of quality. So you don't really need to deviate too much because ultimately, I mean, the story should trump the medium. Although, you know, back to your Avery Truffleman story, I thought it was really fascinating how she's such like a, like a renegade podcaster where she hates things being too polished. Mm -hmm. So that balance there. It's really about this idea of access, right? But I mean, yeah. I think our setup is not so fancy that it's not accessible. I mean, the stuff that we've leveled up to is probably more than most people would pay. But I think that the goal is to how do you find options and solutions that yeah. fit different price tiers? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are some things that are nice, but also there's a range, right? Like you could downgrade the mic or the recording or the mic stand as necessary. Yeah. There's so much good quality equipment out there. For different price points. And like, that's the thing I'll, I'll share. We'll definitely share how we go about it. Yeah. Maybe we should. I was thinking we should just do like a, a mini guide into itself on how we do it. Well, you know, I was, so I recorded that tutorial for the Instagram dynamics using Loom, according to your recommendation. And I did it with a, like, it has this inset video of myself and you, I talk throughout the video, right? So I basically made a YouTube tutorial before our internal team. But so many people ask us how to make those, make the videos with the sound wave bar at the bottom. I'm like, mm -hmm. the video, honestly, I could share with whoever asks 
next, even though I think I do address Nate and Elphick in it. No, I think it's stuff like that that's helpful. And there's things that I think will even change that process too down the line. I mean, however we do a thing now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best. It's just the way that we figured it out at the moment um, that evolves. Yeah. Should we get started? Yeah. So my subject today is drawn from a pretty long Polygon report slash take on the video game industry right now as it stands. And the title is, There Are Too Many Video Games, What Now? Which is kind of a clickbaity title in my opinion. But it is about what happens when the industry becomes overly saturated. And this is, we talk about this all the time. This is kind of what we talked about last week in terms of visual aesthetics, but um, this week to talk more specifically about games, I'm just going to provide a couple of stats. Maybe one of the things that's remarkable is that this article suggests the game landscape has really changed in just the four or five years that are most recent. So it's like um, this really abrupt spike in what's happening, like in more games being developed, in more studios, um, in more platforms being interested in games. Uh, one person they interviewed in Spain said that out of hundreds of indie studios there, only about 10 are profitable. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, so that's a little bit anecdotal, but it is from a game developer in Spain. So at least like to his feeling, it's this very tiny percentage. And, and he says there's like a private WhatsApp chat um, amongst all of them talking about like the difficulties. And then more hard numbers. Stats from Steam has shown that every year since 2014, the number of games released on the platform have doubled. 1,700 in 2014 and then 3,000 in 2015. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah, go for it. Why do you think that it has doubled so quickly? Oh, so it goes into it. And one of the things is that, and we just talked about this in the intro too, is that tools are so readily available to everyone. What those are is like hardware, software distribution, right? I mean, I could make a game. With, with the enough dedication. I'm not saying I'd make a good game. I just mean that I have the power as I sit here in my room to make a game and then publish it to the public. And that's kind of remarkable, right? Like, and this kind of happens in, it's funny you mentioned the A.V. Truffleman piece because this kind of happens with all types of media. Like podcasting becomes available to everyone once the podcast store allows all submissions for approval. Um, blogging, right? Like we can all broadcast endlessly. And the thing about a game is that it is more difficult, admittedly, like technically more difficult, but the possibility is still the same. That point is what I was most fascinated about was I perceive video game design and creation to be a very complex and heavy lift. Well, yeah. So one thing that they talk about in this article is that it used to not be that way. Like it didn't have to be this heavy lift. Like it could be like games are kind of one of those unique things that it can be a very wide range from like the most basic thing, like Flappy Bird think, right? Remember Flappy Bird with the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. tapping bird that's avoiding obstacles or it can be um, like Fortnite, right? Which this article go- goes on at length about as well, which is the multiplayer shooter battle royale style thing. And then it all changes from like level of game graphics, level of downloadable content. Just there is this huge spectrum between what counts as a game 
And so they talk about how people expect games to be really polished now. Like the art can't be bad anymore. People have lower acceptance rates for that. Mm. Which also kind of reminds me of us and doing the podcast and doing our audio things because... It's so crazy how we always end up choosing things that sort of correlate because my topic also discusses this. Yeah, but yours is a bit of a spin on it because oh, I don't know yeah. if we should go into it, but yeah. I am. So yeah. what value do you think independent games have that aren't polished? Like, do they have something? Because you could argue that in the podcasting world, like, or even just the media blogging world, perfection versus idea, you can have an idea put out into the world and it doesn't need to be polished, but it has value. Right. right? It's a different way of thinking about something. Yeah, I think you just can't, as an indie game studio, you can't fight on the basis of game graphics. Do you know what I mean? Or like technical things like that. Like y- you can't fight on, oh, the grass and the hair is really realistic or <laughs> the cutscenes have, I don't know what it is, just like poly light, whatever. Do you, you get what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that's just not possible. You don't have the resources or resources is any in any way the humans the money the time to make that happen so it has to be like what is the initial concept of the game and also to think about yo what can we do that a big studio cannot because big studios have to make a much bigger commitment right that's why you see so many sequels um dark souls 3 recently came out and it's been a success and it by all reviews it's a good game but it is a kind of safe play because you're building on an existing franchise. So it's like if you're an indie studio, you know, you're free to make whatever IP you want. Yeah. You don't have to, you also don't have to react to an existing community base if, if you don't want to. And for someone like you who has played probably both indie games and yeah, commercial a franchise game, yeah. what do you see in these franchises that can sort of really play in the favor of indie games? The way that I look at FIFA is like everyone just complains every year a new game releases and for the first few months it might be unique and different and then the complaints come in and they just patch it. They offer an update and it just returns back or regresses back to what it was the previous year but maybe a little bit better. It is interesting how the big studios will push for different kinds of console usage or different technical abilities that smaller studios don't have the bandwidth to innovate on. And those things do trickle down, right? Like let's say a big game studio develops a um, an engine to run their game that's like, you know, 50% more efficient or whatever it is. Eventually that will, that kind of technology, those kind of techniques will go to the indie gamers, like the indie developers as well. It's kind of like how However, the New York Times produces a story, like we, we find out about that too, right? Like actually a lot of our early techniques we took from NPR. So mm. it, it's not, even though it's within a big company, it's not like it stays within those closed doors. And then a lot of people obviously leave big companies and start their own or, or go to smaller companies. I think about, well, one thing that this article goes into that is intriguing to me is this idea of gamers being gamers being anyone like you and me included like we play video games right everyone having a very finite amount of time so even if you're a really hardcore gamer like you're a 
professional streamer, max, you're playing what, maybe 12 hours a day, possibly a little bit more. And you have, there's way more games out there than there are actual hours that you could devote to playing the games. Mm -hmm. I would argue that even if you narrowed it down to your, like the games you're interested in, there's still more of those than you have time for. So how do people make decisions and, and also what is driving those decisions? Ultimately, does distribution become an issue or not? So No, I don't think so. That's interesting because most media faces a bit of a challenge with distribution. But, you know, I don't really go on Steam for the opportunity to buy new games. But fundamentally, I think we're entering a space where if distribution isn't necessarily the issue, then it's actually a bit better because it's the best of the best win versus, you know, there's a, probably a lot of low quality games that don't deserve to be games being put out in the world. Yes, I do think that it's still the system with games because there's a lot of transparency. Basically, every game is reviewed quite widely across multiple platforms. So that information is quite public and that's different, right, from the media that we deal in. Like we don't get reviewed on every piece of thing. We do, but games are. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it is easy to find the best. But the thing is that there's just so many of the best that they what the story talks about is how indeed developers need to find marketing ways to break into people's consciousness that's outside of the game world entirely like how can they make some kind of event or do something that is of enough notice that a wider population outside of games would also take notice so that is still a little bit distribution in a way well i thought like you meant distribution like the, the pipes are kind of clogged in a way with a lot of output. Mm, um, I, don't, hmm. I, like, like, I don't think I would just use... I don't know if I would use... I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think I would use the word distribution because I think of that as like, if you have trouble with that, uh, you're not... You don't have access to the publishing tools necessary. Mm -hmm. And it's not like games aren't getting reviewed either. So like the game world, there are some really underrated hits, right? Like you might still get a really positive review on Polygon or IGN and still not become profitable. It's almost like there are just too many games. By virtue of having too many, they can't all be good though, right? Um, so I don't know if I would call them not good, but I would say that probably a lot of them are redundant. Hmm. They can be good, but still be about the same thing. I don't think you have to be like one of one to be good. Mm -hmm. Maybe a lot of studios are making good games, but they just are very similar. How do you find new games? Mm, mostly by reading about them first. So unlike movies, which I will not watch trailers for or learn about before going into a theater, for games I actually do read quite extensively, which is interesting the way... I've approached media, but it's, I guess it's because like the video game commitment is much higher. Like I have to know how many hours I'm putting into this or I'm mm -hmm. choosing to say that I'm willing to do to, in order to complete this game. So I, I want to mm -hmm. check that out thoroughly first. Was there anything about this article that was surprising to you? What do you know about the Switch or how do, do you have any feelings towards the Nintendo Switch one way or the other? I've, I think it's a great opportunity for people to just casually pick up a game oh interesting so positive you'd say and how would you yeah rate like 
your feeling towards how it's doing? I, I've heard more than any other console, people say, oh, I want to buy a Switch. Like I, I was at a restaurant at 12 a.m. and someone that was working there was like, oh, do you know if there's anywhere that has a Switch available to purchase right now? And I was like, mm, I don't think so. I know it's Hong Kong, but like, you're not going to find something at 12 a.m. to pick up a Nintendo Switch. <laughs> it, it was Kenneth from Yardbird, by the way. Uh, that's funny. Um, that's funny. Yeah, I'm. what was interesting to me, and I, um, I do have a Switch, or, or me and my boyfriend have a Switch together, but I didn't have this sensation that it was doing really well, like... It's not doing poorly, but I thought, you know, it's kind of been a slow uptick. But the story talks about people asking for games on the Switch and mm -hmm. being excited about the Nintendo Switch shop, like the, that platform, as opposed to yeah. Steam or PlayStation. Yeah. Or mobile that is gaming. pretty interesting. You can just be an independent publisher and just put something out there. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really they, cool. they talk about that a lot, like cutting out. You don't need, you don't need a bigger name publisher to help you out. Actually, I played this game recently called Donut County. I'll send you an article later about it, and it's it it's a quirky, like fun short game, like four or five hours. But the bigger story is actually about gentrification. Oh, interesting. But they do it in a not totally serious way, like. You can have fun just playing the game and you can choose to not think about gentrification, but it that is actually the bigger theme. So mm -hmm. I thought like that's one indie game that I think did a really good job in terms of, you know, blending some simple gameplay with a bigger concept and then, you know, setting limitations on the game that made it doable to publish and still be effective and, and probably hopefully make him financially sustainable have you played any of the battle royale games no i haven't so another thing the article talks about is how long battle royale has been trendy because gaming kind battle of royale being like multiplayer massive multiplayer like everyone fights everybody kind of thing. yes yeah like yeah. last man standing that's what it means and there's three big ones right so fortnite PUBG, and overwatch and they're talking about how usually fads will come and go really quickly, but this one is just like got a lot of traction and is actually discouraging to indie game developers because it's kind of like, why would people want to play these like single player games about gentrification when they're just all playing battle royales? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the battle royale is kind of the equivalent of clickbait or viral content or just like yeah. meme videos, right? Yeah. I mean, thematically, everything sort of represents the same shit across various creative mediums. That's kind of interesting to think about, drawing that parallel between the battle royale and the clickbait easy content. Mm. I guess because it's not, I mean, but it it's, it's not like you totally turn off your brain. I, I can't say I think it, it's fun for a minute, but I can't say I think that highly of it. Hey, sorry, I have to make a... Uh, I have to make a correction because I had this feeling that I was wrong. Overwatch is not a battle royale because it's team-based, but it is a capture the flag kind of game. That's it for me. I, I, guess, um, I guess my conclusion is something has to give in a way. Like, I, th I think the most natural thing that happens is probably 
indie game studios stop sprouting up all over the place. Like there will be fewer of them because it's just not financially viable. The bubble viable. will burst. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, also uh, we're seeing this already is that smaller studios are being acquired or they're merging. Um, so it's just not, uh, I mean, so many different things show this is just difficult for any landscape to have many, 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 many small players. So shall we move on? Yes. There's a lot of things that this last bit of the conversation has sort of tipped over into yours. This, I'm doing these weird, well, tipped over and or made me think a little bit more profoundly about the topic. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's get into it. My topic this week is in praise of mediocrity, the pursuit of excellence has infiltrated and corrupted the world of leisure. So professor and writer Tim Wu, who teaches at Columbia, penned a Sunday op-ed for the New York Times on the topic of how we can no longer escape mediocrity, meaning we can't just go and do something and be average, below average at it. And everything has to be driven by some sort of success metric and or goal. And you're always working towards something bigger. And it's, I'm not sure who has instilled this in us, whether it's culture and society as a whole, or we generally see ourselves needing to be better because we want to be better. Like, I think there's different things that are exerting internal, external pressures on that. I wonder if part of it is personal and then also part of it is because of the technological landscape. Like, for example, Tim Wu makes a like talks about if you're a jogger, it's not enough to cruise around the block. You're training for the next marathon. And that could be in relation to people using tracking apps. So it's just really obvious now how well you're doing. Do you think that also we are in a place now currently where we recognize, I mean, I, I think jogging is actually a bad example because jogging is about personal fitness and it's often proven to be a metric that you want to strive for. So like, for, for example, you jogging and working harder and being faster is actually beneficial versus yeah. can I pick up a game, a video game that I enjoy playing, but I suck at. Yeah, I see your right? point. I jogging might, is not the best example. It's interesting because the bigger story at hand is that culture and society as we know it is pushing so heavily into the world of technology and AI in hopes of us being more liberated and we can spend more time doing these leisurely activities, right? Mm -hmm. But what does it mean when no one really enjoys it? And I think that maybe the overarching argument is a little bit too broad because some people might actually enjoy the pursuit of personal improvement. Right. Like some people find enjoyment from pushing themselves to be better. But I think it does raise a great point where sometimes we're even prevented from starting because excellence is something we need to pursue. Right, right, right. Like he says, oh, why would you pick up Italian when you don't think that At you could be 60. fluent? Yeah. Whenever these things happen, what I find really fascinating is like, do people kind of think to the next level below the surface in regards to why am I behaving the way I am or why am I acting the way I am? And like emotionally, whatever's preventing me from you know, picking up Italian at the age of 60 to learn it 
can I actually push those aside? Mm. And I think that's one of the most interesting things is because I do agree there's certain things that I personally were was maybe a little bit hesitant because, oh, I'm I'm too old to pick it up and get good at it. But then I also recognize that there's also a lot of intangible values from just learning a new skill, yeah. regardless of if it's being perfect, regardless of it's actually improving myself, like on a, on a measurable yeah. level. It's just the act of doing something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, right. I get what you mean. I think I was going to see if we could go an episode without referring to the fact that I'm in school, but apparently not because I really want to mention this. So yesterday we were talking about parameters, um, like kind of what you're talking about rules that are in your daily living situations that maybe you don't see or guidelines that, um, you come up against and you don't even realize that you're butting against those guidelines. Like for example, the barrier to you learning Italian is this perception that if it's not going to be useful, like if you're not going to travel to Italy or you're not going to work in Italy or live there, like why learn it? And then becoming aware of what the parameter is and refusing that and being able to say like, I don't subscribe to this, whatever it is that's holding me back. Yeah. And the one thing that I was thinking about was back in the sort of previous 10, 15 minutes with the video game conversation was looking at all these things that, that are kind of being created. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like the, a lot of people are doing things out of interest because they're passionate about it. But at what point will passion be just okay? Because most, most of the things that we've often tipped passion into is like some sort of financial incentive. Yeah. Like if you're passionate about your job, then everything will figure itself out. Yeah. But at what point can we arrive at the fact that I just like building a game that even though it has no financial success, I'm able to do it because we're now in a place where we can actually afford to do that. Afford because of whatever social structures. Yeah. Not just afforded because of the um, access now, but also your life is set up in a way that you can afford that. I think that is the key difference this is what I alluded to earlier when I was saying that our subjects are similar, but the key difference is that Tim Wu is talking about something that's non-commercial, like a venture that is not intended to earn you money. Whereas when we're talking about the video game industry, we are talking about real indie game developers who are trying to make a profit and are unable to do so. And yes, I would imagine that there are video game developers who are hobbyists, but I think you do have to set aside this expectation of being able to make a profit in order to truly enjoy that. Do you think that people are sufficiently aware of what leisure means in 2018. No, man. Because like one thing I say about myself is that I turned all of the things that I enjoyed for fun into the ways that I earn money. And like, I don't know if that was a good decision on my part. It definitely wrecks your relationship with it. Because on one hand, I think, oh, I'm so lucky, right? Like, I'm so lucky that I get to do the things that I would have been doing for fun anyway. And now I get to make a living from it. But then I also feel like, well, it's a bit of a curse because now what can I do for fun when all the things that I've naturally found fun are now work? I can comment on that. When I moved to Hong Kong to play soccer, play football, like it was the same thing. Like, I don't think I was psychologically prepared to make the shift from getting 
paid to do something I previously did because I loved it. Hmm. So it's kind of the same thing in a way. And yeah, it is. Cause you would have thought that getting paid to do the sport you loved is sort of the best thing that could happen to you, but it wasn't. I think looking back, I'd probably be a bit, I think looking back, I'd be better equipped psychologically. But then again, I'm also older now. Right. Like it's been like, you know, more than 10 years. So that's something that I think is, is kind of interesting. And for me, now that I look at what leisure means, I think leisure really needs to be positioned in a way which it sounds stupid, but I feel like everything now needs to have some sort of purpose or reason why we do it. I don't know if you agree, but I think that most people now feel as though if I'm going to undertake something just as much as like, I'm not going to do something because I'm not going to get good at, they need a reason to understand why they're doing something. Maybe that's not the whole population, but I think some people Mm. care about that. So it's like understanding. What would you say is the purpose for a leisure activity? That's where I was going with that. I think the purpose behind leisure is really how can I just try things out and find ways to either learn new things that are applicable in other capacities and or reinforce other skills into new opportunities. I think the purpose I see is a little different. I don't disagree with yours, but I do think being able to enjoy something just for what it is, is a sensation that we don't have very much anymore. We mostly think of leisure in social aspects. Like we have fun with our friends eating dinner or going to a movie together. But there, sh- there should, I think, I think we need as humans alone time where we are enjoying ourselves as we are, like as individuals doing something. Yeah. And I guess if I had to say if I had a hobby, I would say it's reading or if that's the closest I get to a hobby mm-hmm. where I'm doing a thing for leisure and I'm just enjoying the thing without thinking about how do I get better at reading or Like, I don't think so, not always. I don't think about how is this reading translating into skills that can be useful. I mean, even, even me, like when I read, I, I don't read because I necessarily enjoy the act of reading. I guess I do like on a holistic level, but I'm also thinking of reading from the context of like, how will I be able to apply this somewhere else? But what's interesting is like being better at reading. What is that? Like better comprehension, hard to measure. You can read faster, but then... I don't know. I've never always been turned off by things that are measured by a speed or time or something because ultimately that's something that's really challenging to improve upon because I think there's such a strong sort of uh, genetic disposition there. Maybe reading is different, but like when it comes to sprinting or running a marathon, like you're you can try to improve yourself, but I I think part of me is also turned off. By the fact that mm-hmm. you're never going to be in a certain percentile, which is the wrong reason, but it's how I look at things. Like I generally like things that require a lot of different factors coming together and how you can improve different factors all on the spectrum to improve the final output. Mm, I don't think that's the point of a hobby. Of course not. Yeah. Because I think maybe one thing this reminds me of is when we started making it up and we used to do those drawings. Yeah. And that was, I mean, yes, that was for this podcast. And so in a way is work, but it was also like both of us getting to do a hobby because we were just doing this like really quick, what meant to be something really quick. And it's 
something we didn't necessarily have to do. Like we have to do this audio recording part of the podcast. We don't have to do the drawing, but we were doing it. You also did not have to like measure yourself against like, is this a really good drawing or not? Yeah, actually that was probably the closest thing to something that I would undertake as like a hobby or something or just trying something new. Good place to finish things for the day. If you're interested in learning more about Megan, you can read and listen to our stories, which are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture at makein.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.